1: because businesses that grow grow with shopify get a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash work shopify.com slash work
0: secure the insecure with johnny seafoot is sponsored by jennings and co-financial planning
2: helping to make sense of money And welcome to Secure the Insecure, the podcast where I say it's okay to not be okay. I'm Johnny Seaford, and every week I'm joined by one very special guest. She has one of the best voices in the UK, literally. No, seriously, this is literally how I know her is through her voice. Basically, I'm going to paint you a little picture. A couple of years ago, about six or seven years ago, I was watching BBC One. And I thought, oh, that voiceover's got a nice voice. And I literally put a tweet out. She saw it. We started talking. Seven years later, down the line, me and Louise Holland, who joins me this week... Our best of buddies. She's helped me get work, I've helped her get work and it's amazing to see how a relationship can form through social media. We always kind of slate social media but actually friendships can be made from there as well. So joining me is Louise Holland. Hello, Lou.
1: Hey, that's got to be one of the most fun introductions I've ever heard and I'm so glad that you told that story because if you weren't going to, then I
2: Okay, well that's my perspective. I like the sound of your voice. How was it for you then seeing a tweet from a random boy going, Do
1: you know what? It's nice because, and not because, um, not because I necessarily love the idea of random men sending me nice tweets on Twitter, but mainly because I think when you have any kind of job in the spotlight or on air in any way, you kind of have to really psych yourself up to the negative comments. Um, and I've, in the main, been really, really, really lucky in that area. And um, So to get a message like that was really sweet, especially when I checked out your profile and realised you were a budding presenter yourself. So I was like, oh, I like the
2: cut of his jib. Oh, well, that's the thing. It's very hard because, you know, not everyone would have heard of me, not everyone would have heard of you. And if you think reporter presenter, you right, like, right, Piers Morgan, Dan And you're like, no, there are other reporters out there. You might not necessarily know who they are, but there's people investigating really serious stories that you need to hear.
1: But I think that's quite nice because we get the best of both worlds, right? We get to do a job that we love um, and we get to still be able to go around Sainsbury's in peace. I think that's great, right? So, like, I've had a 20-year career doing stuff, but in the main, I've been hugely passionate about. Obviously, sometimes you have to take the jobs that pay the rent, but in the, you know, in the main, um, my CV is pretty polished. My experience is really good, and yeah, I don't, I get to meet great people like you on social media. But yeah, I don't have any of the pressures of being like a mega celebrity, which just sounds awful to me, to be honest. <laughs>
2: But does that give you that almost sense of imposter syndrome when you're amongst these bigger, what more well-known reporters, presenters and then Louise Holland's name is there?
1: Yeah, I think that's so That's so true, because I think we've talked about this as well, haven't we? Like, I really, really suffer with, suffer with imposter syndrome. And I never really took it seriously as a concept, because I thought it was one of those things that people just would throw into a conversation as a bit of false modesty. Oh, I've quit imposter syndrome, you know, don't be too nice to me. A friend of mine actually said, no, no, it is a real thing. Like, the anxiety that you can get around being successful is genuinely real. And I was like, oh, actually, okay, maybe I'm not going crazy after all. And I think that's one of the things. I don't know if it's because I'm northern or and maybe I don't have, um, maybe because I don't have a media family, I don't know what it is, but whenever I sort of go to events, or whenever I have any kind of work in the spotlight, sort of obviously if I've got a documentary going out, or an investigation going out, or a book coming out, I always have I um, I can't really explain it, but a real attack of anxiety in the run-up to it, and I never really quite work out what it's going to be about, I think it's potentially any, usually it's like the credibility of the work, that like, oh, I, I can have a sleep this night if I've got something wrong, or um, am I going to let somebody down, there's that pressure that I put on my, self and then there's a the fear of any kind of trolling or people just being really mean to you um, and then of course the, sort of, you're taking that step back and I think it all comes down to the fact that you think oh my god I don't belong here what's going on how am I how am I here right now and I think that's what I've really learned with the, the book that I've got out at the moment it's been such a learning process actually one of the most successful things about it for me personally is that I've really I think been able to harness That insecurity and hopefully put it to bed for good. I hope because I've really had to work on it so much.
2: Well, I think also part of it comes from the fact that working in the media is we don't really get praise. We are kind of booked as freelancers to do a job (laughs) and you do the job. And if you do something wrong, you get in trouble. If you don't do something wrong, then you kind of cruise waiting for the boss to call you. And when the boss calls you, I mean, I've told my boss literally, if you're going to call me, you've got to text me first and tell me you're going to call me because I get too scared um but it's that thing of i go to events and i think well hold on a minute i'm 27 years old i sometimes feel i'm a bit too young to be here like all these celebrities are all over me and i'm like oh i know you and you know me but do i fit into this arena because no one's told me yes johnny you've kind of made it i've done it all myself as you have as a journalist as well
1: i think that's the thing i think basically it's one of those industries where you've got to have If not a massively thick skin, you can't have too thin a skin because you're not necessarily... Unless you do something spectacular or you work for a really empowering boss, you're not necessarily going to get daily praise every day. The fact that you're being rebooked and getting through the day unscathed is testament to the fact that you can do your job well. But I think that's the expectation. It is a really tough industry and the fact that you are being booked continually and you are there doing the job and you are not screwing it up. That's kind of what you should be doing. So I think I wonder if it's a generational thing as well because I'm kind of I've never really expected the praise. I've always sort of gone, yeah, it's lovely if you get it, but you're kind of there to be good. You know, if you want to if you want to stick around in the industry, you've got to have that level of of um, flexibility and stamina. And I wonder if maybe because you're a few years younger than me, I wonder if maybe different generations coming up saying, "Hang on, we're not putting up with this." You also need to tell me that I am worth what what you're offering me you know i'm worthy of doing the job as well and um yeah i think it's really interesting how work expectations have changed through the generations
2: well going the generation below me i'm noticing now university students coming into work and thinking their way of the world is very different as well they're very much in the fact of i want to see x y and z happen in the workplace and i want to change the workplace and it's like well this is how the workplace has always been we've seen this massive drive especially recently with diversity for example or that people are now like they should be in certain positions because they've got a master's degree or because they've got a degree and I think that's also different now and the fact that we all feel self-proclaimed to having a job whereas before it's very much you start at the bottom and you work your way up.
1: One of the ones, one of the things that I found really fascinating when I started out was everyone kept telling me for years, media's really tough. The media's really tough. You've got to be better than everyone. And I was like, okay, can you kind of work hard, get my head down. If I'm good enough, then it will work out. And I kind of walked into work placements and work work experiences and um, and maybe freelance gigs, just expecting everyone to be amazing for me. Really to have to be like doubly amazing to do well. And it was always such an eye opener to realise how many other people on work placements were just really crap <laughs> I'm just lazy and entitled and I was like oh actually maybe the bar's not quite as nice as I thought it was
2: well literally it's not what you know it's who you know
1: uh, yeah it's funny because like, I know people who've got really well known um, family members and they struggle with the fact that they ha- they feel that they have to work really hard to be proven to be there in their own right like obviously they'll have connections they'll have people that will give them a chance because they able will jump out whereas mine or yours necessarily wouldn't but then once they're in people are waiting for them to screw up so they have to be really 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 good so i think you know i think anything but you know life is complicated enough isn't it most people just want to get on keep their head down have a nice life and i think if you can kind of keep your eye on your own lane and maybe not necessarily focus on what other people are doing. I think that's the healthiest way to get through it. That's what I've meant, anyway.
2: So then you bring out a book, Stolen Lives, Human Trafficking and Slavery in Britain Today. It came out last week. Why did you want to bring out a book about slavery?
1: It was some that and it, sort of academically i'd heard about um about 10 years ago so sort of the rise of human trafficking in slavery in britain um and i was thinking this can't be right it's britain in 2010 and i started looking into it and i thought oh, see, this actually is a massive problem and that was 10 years ago and i worked with it kind of quietly because I, I i was a bit of a one-man band being freelancing so you know you can't if i was not a, a reporter on six o'clock news or on ICV news you could sort of walk in and say hey I've got the story give me some time to investigate it but as a, as, a, as a solo player you kind of have to have all the ducks in a row and then go and pitch it so I kind of slowly slowly went about finding out more about this issue and got those people who were working on the front line and it was something that was always kind of simmering below for quite a few years and then um, about three years ago I actually met a survivor of human trafficking and that changed everything for me because it went from being something that you know is a horrendous crime and you try and put yourself in in their position and think good god how horrendous would that be if you had your liberty taken away from you but then the minute you meet someone who's been through it like i had an actual visceral response to meeting this poor girl and you suddenly see look into someone's eyes and you see the human cost of it and that changed everything, and it made me really want to sort of shout about this crime from the rooftops because it is all around us. And so I kind of, sort of thought, well, actually, how's the best way to do this? I thought sort of did a few blogs, I did a few freelance articles, pitched a few documentaries. And but it wasn't until a friend of mine who's a writer said, you've got to, you've got to tell this story. Um, and yeah, the rest is history. So of six months later, after doing the pitch and many, many versions of the document, um, I got, I got a publishing deal.
2: It's estimated that 136,000 people in the UK are embroiled in some form of slavery. Where do you begin with that? Because I'm sure it's not easy as going on Twitter and typing in slavery and suddenly a load of slavery workers turn up that you can just send a DM to.
1: Yeah, exactly. So basically, the statistics is really, really complicated around this, because if you think about the fact that when we think of slavery, we think of chains and shackles and people literally being tied up, right? But in modern day slavery, whilst I'm sure that does happen in certain parts of the world, actually, the, the traffickers use emotional shackles, they are um, really manipulative, they use control mechanisms, such as Oh, uh, if you try and escape, the police here won't trust you. They won't. They won't believe you. They don't like women. They don't like exiles. Like why? They will um, threaten families abroad. They will. They just use all kinds of fear and coercion to keep people under control, and they break them down bit by bit by bit, so they don't trust anybody anymore. So to actually get an accurate picture of how many people are in slavery is really difficult because it's sort of secretive, it's in the shadows, it's kind of in plain sight but it's not something that people are necessarily going to either um, tell you (laughs) or they're not necessarily going to announce themselves as slaves for but they might not even realise that that is what is happening to them because um, traffickers have a very clever knack of, of focusing on people who are already really, really vulnerable. And so maybe people aren't looking out for them. So, for example, um, there are some traffickers who will target the homeless and the rough sleepers and people with addiction issues because they know that they've got complicated lives if they disappear for a while. People that know them might not necessarily think anything of it. And they'll ply them with more alcohol, more drugs to make sure that they're completely pliable. And they're really, really cruel people. So... To get any kind of firm number and any kind of interviews with um, current Monday slaves is, is really tricky. Where I managed to uh, speak to some people was actually once they'd been rescued and they'd gone through um, the sort of the recovery system and they felt that they did want to tell their story anonymously, obviously with the support of the people that had helps rescue them, helps, helps start to put them back on a, on a path to their liberty. Um, and you can imagine that the emotional trauma that they've been through is so horrific. The fact that they even want to share their story with anybody is so admirable. And the people that wanted to share their stories with me did so despite their own challenges because they wanted to make sure that what happened to them didn't happen to anybody else. And I just found that the most humbling thing.
2: And what were those stories? What were you hearing from them?
1: Well, anecdotally, there were so many stories that we heard from um, women who were housemaids, i.e. unpaid housemaids. Um, So, for example, um, this isn't in the book, but these are some anecdotal stories that I've heard along the way. Um, Two young girls who were housemaids in Nigeria, a nice lady for both of them, came up to them and said, Oh, you know, I know you want an education. I can take you away from this world of drudgery. I'll get come and work for me in my house, and then you pay, and I'll send you to school. Uh, on both occasions, they ended up being slaves. In one, uh, one was in North London, in Brent, um trapped in the house. You know, she, she as I say, traffickers go from have a knack of finding vulnerable people. So she went from one horrendous situation into another. A similar um, story for the for the other girl as well. Only with the second girl, we heard that. Um, she thought she'd be, her, her family was expecting her to be spent sending money back to help them, and obviously she wasn't getting paid. The mother of the family died from cancer, and the rest of the family blamed her because she wasn't sending money back. They thought she was in the UK living the high life, they had no idea she wasn't getting paid so those kinds of really horrendous stories in the book um there's a young woman called or she referred to as jay who was uh passed around gangs of men in her hometown she was a vulnerable girl came from quite um a complicated family life uh one neighbor was incredibly sweet to her as she was growing up didn't realize sort of only realized retrospectively that what he was doing was grooming her and she ended up in the most horrific abuse that actually, I didn't even put all of it in the book because it was just too, just too, I mean, I don't, I'm stomach churning. I can't think of a better word. So it really was quite traumatic to have those exchanges with her. There was a man um, from Slovakia who came out of prison. He was very open about that. He said, you know, I was a criminal, I came out of prison. But I turned my life around, I started going to church and was really excited about building a new life of being a good person uh, with my new faith. And a man at church basically offered him and his family the chance to come to the UK with a home and a good job. And he jumped at the chance. Um, but when he got there, he found out that he was then one of many families living in this house. He was terrified that his family would be harmed, so he had to go out and, and do the work for this man. And and that was horrendous. And the main spine of the story is the young woman that I met, that I met a few years ago that I mentioned um, earlier, she was a student in Albania and fell in love with a guy thought that this was the love of her life went off to Belgium to meet his family and when they got to after this is sort of like a six nine month relationship she went to meet his family in Belgium and the family weren't there he put her in a took her to a house where his friends were and it left her and it turned out that was a brothel and the first night after he left her she was um expected to deal to see clients and so, so for ten months she was in this brothel, attacked, assaulted, um, and she fell pregnant while she was during, while she was in this brothel, and managed to escape for the sake of her baby. And yeah, I mean there's some really rough stories in there, but the one thing that I really do hope is that. Actually, it, they are tales of hope because these people have come out the other side. They're starting to put their lives back together. And there's so many people working in the, in the sphere of anti-trafficking and anti-slavery that's so amazing, so admirable, really trying to put, out, put a stop to this crime. So I really hope that the kind of the ultimate message of the book is hope and that if we all come together as a society, we actually can try and stop this crime.
2: And is that why you wanted to bring out the book? Do you feel almost now you've had these stories that you've got a responsibility to firstly tell them and secondly, make some change?
1: That is that is literally it. I mean, you literally answered that question for me. That's exactly it. You've, I think so many people that work in the sector, um, I think I say at the end of the book, actually, that they have... You can feel this cause within them, like they don't just sort of switch off at five o'clock and go home. I was hearing stories of police officers who um would pay out of their own pockets to put survivors in b and b s when they came out of um out of slavery if they couldn't find an emergency accommodation. They'd pay to put them in at b and b's um there was they've made safe houses all around the country that if there is enough funding, they'll give them their own their own stuff they'll find ways. Um, to make the, the survivors' life as comfortable as possible, and it's the little touches that you see. Like I got a tour of a safe house, and nobody was in it. Just to clarify, um, it was empty at the time. But they were showing me rounds, and all these the little touches that they that, that they they put in, like little little wash bags and nice clothes and magazines. And but to you and me, they sound the most simple things, you know, why on earth would we make such a fuss about that? But when someone's had every bit of their dignity shredded from them, to walk into their own room with nice bedding and a little bit of soap and shower gel and a hairdryer and things that show that you can actually, someone can care for you. Those were actually the toughest things, actually. Sometimes you could almost, as a journalist, I could almost switch off whilst I was doing the interviews and kind of go into professional mode and then sort of do my crying afterwards. But it was when you're seeing these tiny gestures of human kindness that you would know would mean the world to somebody who had been so cruelly treated. It was such a moving experience.
2: But did you get to that point of almost yourself being desensitised, that you're writing a book, you've got to write a certain amount of words, that almost these stories just become words on a page to fill the gap, that suddenly you've got to take that step away and... Be a journalist and almost lose that human, um, that human passion that you personally have.
1: That's a really good question. I think it's that. I think that's one of the reasons in the way that I ordered the book. So, and I think as well, one of my friends has been reading it and she sent me a message just saying, I'm so glad you, like, you always seem to know when to sort of end a really difficult bit and then have a complete gear change because everyone just needs a cup of tea and a bit of a cry. Um, So I think think my passion and my personal passion for the book comes through in kind of introductions, in my sort of interactions with people, my conclusions, that sort of thing. You can definitely see that I'm a human being, I hope, when writing it. Um, I think I ha- there are quite a lot of factual chapters in there where you do go into journalist mode and you are recounting information. Then, of course, there are interviews with police officers and experts where actually you're then just being the conduit and you're kind of interviewing them and their voice is the most important one. And then with the survivors, especially Elena's story, which is the story that's weaved all the way through because um, we, we we I meet her in a coffee shop. That's sort of the beginning of the book. And we kind of go backwards to hear how she came to this coffee shop. And then we kind of catch up to the present time and her and I go on a bit of a journey together um, as we try and help her through quite a few challenges that she faced in, in her safety within the UK. And they, they were the ones where kind of, you become a human more than a journalist so there's a real balance of my emotion my my journalism and then me just sort of taking a back back seat and letting the
2: experts speak it's amazing what you're doing because you're making a stance. now that your name is out there and it's connected to the slavery i don't want to say the slavery industry but amongst people that are looking to slavery how do you feel that you're almost becoming a representative of these people who are unfortunately in this position, but you haven't been through it yourself?
1: I think, oh, that's such a good question. I think when you're a journalist or a documentary maker or in any way where you're telling people stories, you are the conduit, like you're there to tell their story. So you kind of put your own personal sort of concerns to one side, I think, and say, actually, someone has to stand up and and get this out there. And I'm not saving lives like the police officers like the charities that are helping the people like the psychologists that are helping them um, like the therapists like I'm not doing anything like that I'm all I'm doing is alerting people to the fact that this is a crime that it's on our doorstep and how to spot it like, this is a hundred and twenty billion pound a year industry and it's really really big business so it almost feels overwhelmingly huge that you know what can you and I do about it but if everyone took that stance I think well nothing would ever change so I think maybe if this book even if like one or two people read it and spot something you imagine that imagine you read a book and then think oh my goodness now I feel informed about this crime I've spotted something on my high street and and you could you know this could could change someone's life if you can if you're empowered with the knowledge to then help rescue somebody so, I think the fact that I haven't been through it means that i I can stay objective and I can stay analytical, but I think I'd not be a very good human being if I could switch off my heart and my mind and just write about things because they haven't happened to me. I think you know it's really important to be able to put yourself in someone's position as best you can. you know I can't in any way claim to imagine what Elena or Jay or any of these people have been through but I think I've got enough empathy as a human being and I've witnessed enough of their life now to sort of say this is something that I really believe in and I have to sort of stand up and do something about it.
2: I don't want to ask the question, what's next? But there has to be the next move in your head of where you want this book to go. So now you've planted the seed and Stolen Lives is out now. What do you want to happen within the next six months? Do you want to take this to government level and change legislations around anything? Is there that you want to just change the conversation? Where do you actually want to go with this? Because you've started something so incredible that it can't just end here.
1: God, I haven't given that much thought. You're terrifying me. No, that is a really good question. Um, I think I probably, when I was writing the book, I just wanted to get this information out there. The fact that it's on shelves, it's on Kindles, it's on audio, but the fact that it's there... And people, and it's, people can read it and have their eyes open to it. Already, some of the feedback that I've been getting from people who are reading it—it's, you know, a couple of people said they have had arguments with their husbands about things, and, um, you know, this kind of information that that that, in, that they've been given now—they said they they really feel that they want to do something too. And so, already, what I wanted to happen with the book is happening. So if I can get it, if I can get the book to as many people as possible, if it sounds as interesting as possible to people, hopefully. It will become something that more and more people do just know about. Um, I I hadn't actually given it any thought after that, you know. I think, that, I mean, there's definitely a podcast in a specific area that I'd really like to investigate, sort of an investigative a podcast um, that I'm trying to start getting my head around. But I think if it just starts a conversation... Um, this book in itself and obviously I'll continue uh, to do what I can for many people I think just because as a journalist my name's been associated with with anti-trafficking now I think you know as people come to me and ask me to do things around that I'll obviously consider everything that I can do to keep helping and raising the profile of of anti-trafficking and anti-slavery work
2: I think that's the really important thing that there's actually someone there who is taking on that responsibility, who actually wants to make a change, and not for anyone else, not for themselves, not for, to further your career, but just because you believe in a change happening.
1: Yeah, I think that's a thing. It's you know, it's I, I'll just go back to the first time that I met Elena. You know, this beautiful—I think she was about twenty-two when I met her, twenty-two, twenty-three. This beautiful young mum who had the, her world at her feet, you know, is the first person in her family to go to university from a very traditional background. And what happened to her was horrific. Horrific. And I, I also sort of think, I know I didn't grow up in Albania, I grew up in Britain, but I could so see myself in that position, sort of being wide-eyed and innocent in your late teens, early 20s, meeting someone who you thought, you know, really set you off your feet, really thought loved you, and making what you thought was a decision for love. I mean, they, they are so so clever at finding people's vulnerabilities and manipulating them and targeting them. And once you've met someone who's gone through this, and it's not just me, like I say, I think police officers, people that work in, in the charity sector, it does get under your skin, because there was a, a lawyer that I interviewed, she, she said, you know, the, the life, there's a life sentence now for trafficking. And she said, if so it should be, because it's practically murder, but without taking away someone's breath. You literally strip every part of their life, and I thought that was incredibly powerful. And I think that's maybe something, maybe one of the reasons why. when you start reading about the subject, you do feel compelled to do something because, just imagine it. Just imagine it, Johnny. You know, you're trapped in someone's house, or even if, if even if you have the liberty to go to the shops or do work for them and, and leave and come back, you'd be so terrified and broken down by them, you're too scared to do anything else. You're told constantly no one will believe you you're physically beaten and um, because men men can be victims of sexual assault as well and you know that they, they they really use every trick in the book to control people separating them from their families taking their papers breaking every part of them down so that you're completely and utterly in fear and it is the most horrific thing to do to somebody and yeah i i can't know about this now and not try and, and not try and tell everyone else about it
2: you're doing is an amazing amazing thing louise your book as jeremy vine says a must read modern slavery won't end without books like this and investigators like louise louise you've got the best voice on the radio planet i absolutely love it stolen lives is out to buy in all good bookshops now You've been listening to Secure the Insecure with me, Johnny Seifert. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do rate the podcast, like the podcast and subscribe to it. I can't make this podcast accessible without your help and I really need your help. So please do subscribe, like and rate. I've been Johnny Seifert. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.